Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Happy Wednesday, you guys, or if you aren't listening to this on Wednesday, happy whatever day you are listening to this on. I hope you guys are having a great day so far, a great week. Thank you for coming back and listening to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. You can also follow us on Instagram at Killer Instinct Podcast for all the latest updates on the cases that we cover and when new episodes drop. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a very interesting case, a case that's kind of unlike any that we've ever discovered before on here. And today we are talking about the case of Kevin Cooper. Kevin Cooper is an alleged serial killer who is currently sitting on death row after he was convicted of the murders of the Ryan family, as well as the Ryan family's neighbor, Christopher Hughes. Now, what makes this case so interesting, if you haven't heard about it before, is because Kevin claims he is completely innocent on all counts and claims that he was actually framed for these murders. And a lot of people believe him. A lot of people believe that the evidence does not line up and that Kevin was the easy target to point fingers at in this case. But with that being said, I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. So let's jump right on into it. Kevin Cooper was born on January 8th, 1958. And when he was born, his name was actually not Kevin Cooper. His birth name is actually Richard Goodman. And he was born near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When Kevin was two months old, Kevin's birth mother actually decided that she was not in the right place of her life to be the best mother to Kevin, so she ended up placing him in an orphanage. And just four months later, when Kevin was six months old, he was adopted by a couple named Melvin and Esther Cooper. And when Melvin and Esther adopted him, they renamed him Kevin Cooper. Now, according to Kevin, he did not have the easiest upbringing by any means. He actually described his childhood as quote-unquote abusive and troubled. He was physically beaten by his adoptive parents so much that by the age of seven, he started running away from home to escape the treatment that he was getting at his house. Because of his rough start in childhood, this led to Kevin to turn to crime. In his late teens slash early 20s, he was involved in theft and burglary. In 1977, Kevin was sentenced to one to two years in prison for burglarizing a home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And then in court, he actually admitted that a high school student who lived at the home walked in on him and he kidnapped, raped, and threatened to kill her. Crazy enough, he actually was released from jail for this after the one to two years, and over the next five years, he was sentenced to jail twice on two separate occasions for burglaries he committed, and then he was released again in 1982. Now, when he was released in 1982, Kevin was actually sent to a psychiatric facility in Pennsylvania that he actually ended up escaping from. Once he escaped from this facility is when he then traveled to California, and it didn't take long once he got to California that he started robbing again and getting back into the crime scene. 
And he was arrested again in Los Angeles, California, and was sentenced to four years in prison at the California Institution for Men in Chino on April 29th, 1983. However, he did not go in with his real name, Kevin Cooper. He actually began his sentence under the alias of David Troutman. Now, you might be wondering how Kevin was able to get away with that, and the reason is because on December 13th, 1983, Kevin Cooper applied for and received a California Department of Motor Vehicles identification card using the name David Anthony Troutman. So he basically had a driver's license identification card with the name David Troutman on it instead of Kevin Cooper. So the timeline of this is as follows. Kevin was arrested on January 1st, 1983 in Los Angeles after he committed a burglary. He went into prison using the alias David Troutman and his identity was not discovered. No one ever picked up on it. Because of this burglary, Kevin was sentenced to four years in state prison on April 19th, 1983. However, on June 1st, 1983, Kevin was transferred to the California Institution for Men located in Chino. And let's talk about this California Institution for Men, which is also known as CIM. Now, CIM was an institution that was widely known to not be incredibly strict, as you might see in other prisons. The whole basis of this prison was to reinvent the prison system. At CIM, the employees didn't use terms like warden or guards. They used terms like supervisors, and the supervisors were mainly college students who had never worked in prisons before. The inmates were also able to choose their own clothing and choose the jobs that they would perform at the institution. The cells were not locked, and instead of how most prisons have a wall surrounding the perimeter of the prison, CIM only had a five-strand barbed wire fence. So with all of those factors being considered, it might not be so outrageous for you to hear that Kevin actually escaped CIM only one day of being there. There actually happened to be a hole in the barbed wire fence and Kevin was able to just walk away from the prison in an open field and no one caught him. Shortly after he escaped, a supervisor who actually worked at CIM saw Kevin walking on the street and recognized him because of the CIM uniform that Kevin was wearing. And at first, the supervisor tried to follow Kevin. However, he ended up losing sight of him. And this is when the supervisor reported Kevin's escape. And when they reported Kevin's escape from CIM is when they were made aware of his real identity. So instead of now still believing that his name was David Troutman, the employees and authorities were made aware that his real identity was Kevin Cooper and he had been fooling everyone this entire time. 25 search personnel consisting of prison guards and the police searched for Kevin throughout the area until 10 p.m. that night. However, after not finding him, the police basically gave up on their search and it's also important to note that Kevin Cooper was actually the 12th inmate to escape from CIM that year. So prisoners escaping from CIM was not uncommon. After Kevin escaped CIM, he ended up making his way to a house in Chino Hills. The house was located on a horse breeding farm and it was a vacant home because the breeding operations managers had actually just moved out the previous day, so no one was living there. 
And the house that Kevin was staying at was located near where a different family lived. And this family is named the Ryan family. They are the family that I mentioned in the introduction. The house that Kevin was staying at was located 125 yards away from the Ryan family home. Now let's talk about the Ryan family. The Ryan family consisted of Doug Ryan and his wife, Peggy, along with their two children, Jessica, who was 10 years old, and Joshua, who was eight years old. On June 4th, 1983, between 9 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., the Ryan family had been out at a barbecue and left around that time. Now, when they returned home, they also brought with them 11-year-old Chris Hughes. Now, Chris was a neighbor of the Ryan family as well as a friend to the Ryan children, and Chris was planning on coming back with the Ryans and having a sleepover at their house. Now, that was June 4th, and then the following morning on June 5th, Chris's mother had called the Ryan home to try and coordinate when she could come and pick Chris back up. However, no one was answering. Chris's mom called multiple times, and after not receiving an answer, Chris's mom had sent Chris's father over to the Ryan house to make sure everything was okay and just to pick Chris back up. When Chris's father arrived to the house, he found all of the doors locked and the family's station wagon was missing, the Ryan family's station wagon. Chris's father started knocking on the door and after not receiving any answer, he went around to the back of the house to the sliding glass door and when he looked through the door, he saw the bodies of the Ryan family lying on the floor. He immediately kicked in the kitchen door and that is when he found all of the victims dead, including his own son. Chris. However, miraculously, the only person to survive this attack was eight-year-old Joshua. These murders were absolutely brutal. All of the victims had been chopped up with a hatchet and stabbed with a knife and an ice pick. Their bodies had been absolutely destroyed and Joshua's throat had actually been cut. However, like I said, he survived the attack. When police arrived on the scene, they found Peggy's purse on the counter with all of her money still inside of it, which ruled out the probability of this being a robbery. And as far as the station wagon that went missing out of the driveway, the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department found that car several days later in Long Beach, California, which is about 50 miles southwest of Chino Hills. Now, according to Kevin, on June 4th, the day of the murders at around 4.30 p.m., he began hitchhiking, and he said he actually started hitchhiking to Mexico. It was verified that on June 5th, the following day, Kevin checked into a hotel room in Tijuana, which is about 130 miles south of Chino Hills at about 4.30 p.m. on the 5th. Now, while Kevin was in Tijuana, he actually befriended a couple who owned a sailboat who said that they were going to be sailing up the California coast and they asked Kevin if he would like to join as a crew member and actually work for them and Kevin thought that this would be a great idea and he agreed to do so. However, seven weeks later, while still staying on this couple's boat, there was actually a woman who claimed that she was raped by Kevin on a boat dock nearby where the boat was stopped at. However, she didn't know his identity at that point, but by the time the woman went to the sheriff's department to report the crime, she saw Kevin's picture on a wanted poster in the police department, and that is when she was able to identify him as her rapist. 
After the woman basically told authorities everything that happened, the deputies were able to go and find the boat and find Kevin and arrest him. Now, while Kevin was on the boat, he did not use the name Kevin Cooper and he was not using the alias David Troutman. He actually told the family who owned the boat that his name was Angel Jackson. Kevin was arrested on June 30th, 1983 for the rape charges. And when he was brought back to the sheriff's department and spoken to about what exactly happened and where he was prior to going on this boat, this is when authorities learned that he had been staying in Chino Hills for those two days at a vacant house right next to where a family had been brutally murdered. Now, obviously because of that, this brought up a lot of questions to the authorities. And when they went and started looking through the vacant house, they found some pieces of evidence that basically made them believe without a shadow of a doubt that Kevin Cooper was responsible for the murders of the Ryan family. Now, when authorities talked to Kevin, they later then went and searched the vacant house that Kevin had been staying at, obviously, to see if they could find any potential pieces of evidence. Now, when they did that, they found in the vacant home a button from a prison jacket that is identical to the one that Kevin was wearing when he escaped CIM. And the button was said to have blood on it that could have come from Kevin or could have came from any of the victims of the murders. Along with that, authorities also discovered a blood-stained hatchet that they believed to be the murder weapon. Now, this hatchet was found near the Ryan home, and this hatchet was actually missing from the vacant house that Kevin was staying at for those two days. However, even though the hatchet was missing, the cover of the hatchet was found on the floor of the bedroom where Kevin was sleeping. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So the hatchet wasn't there. The hatchet was missing from the house, but the cover of the hatchet was found in the bedroom that Kevin was sleeping in in the vacant house. Authorities also said that there were shoe prints found in the Ryan home, and the shoe print was exclusive to a specific type of shoe pattern that prison inmates wear. Inside both the Ryan house and the vacant home, there was also tobacco that was exclusive to prison inmates found, and Kevin was a smoker, so it led authorities to believe that this tobacco also belonged to Kevin. Now, when authorities found the station wagon, they also 
found cigarette buds inside of the station wagon. And when they tested them, they found that those cigarette buds had Kevin's DNA on them. There was also hair found in the Ryan car that seemed to match Kevin's as well. Authorities had also done luminol testing in the vacant house. And when they did this, it actually showed that there were bloody footprints in the hallway that led to the bedroom that Kevin was sleeping in, as well as blood on the shower walls. Along with that, there was also hair that looked like it belonged to 10-year-old Jessica Ryan found in the bathroom sink and hair in the bathroom shower that looked like it belonged to Douglas Ryan. So the fact that all of those pieces of evidence were found inside the vacant home that Kevin was staying in during the two days that he was there, it definitely urged police to pin this murder on him because they had the hatchet, they had the cover of the hatchet, they did the luminol testing, they found the cigarette buds, everything was pointing towards Kevin. However, Kevin's story was that even though he admitted to staying at this vacant house, he denied having any involvement in the murders. He said that he left the house on June 4th before it got dark outside, and he had no involvement whatsoever. Now let's talk about Joshua for a second. Like I mentioned, eight-year-old Joshua miraculously survived this attack. It is an absolute miracle that he is alive considering his throat was slashed. Obviously, when he was rescued, he could not talk during his recovery. However, when authorities interviewed him, they would ask him questions and he would answer them by squeezing the authorities' hands in response. Now, the original story that Joshua told the police was that he woke up in the middle of the night on the night of the murders to his mother screaming. He was asleep in his room with his friend Chris prior to this, but they both woke up to the screaming and that's when they opened their door to go see what was going on. When they opened the door, that's when Chris and Joshua saw the bodies of both Joshua's parents and Jessica. Joshua also claimed to see the back of someone he assumed to be the killer. When Joshua saw this, he said that he ran and hid. However, soon after hiding, heard his friend Chris screaming. So he opened the door and ran out to see him. And at that point, Joshua said that something struck him over the head, which left him unconscious. And he then woke up in a pool of blood. So that was Joshua's first story. However, he then changed his story after this and said that there were three Mexican men who had came to his house prior to his family going to the barbecue the same night of the murders. Joshua said that these three men spoke to his father and were looking for work. And Joshua said it was possible that it could have been them because they had been to the house before. After this account, Joshua then changed his story again, saying this time that it was three white men who came in and attacked his entire family and Chris. So Joshua's story was changing pretty consistently, which shouldn't be unexpected. Not only is he only eight years old, but to go through such a traumatic experience like this, there is going to be a lot of confusion going on in your brain. And we are going to get a little bit more into that as we continue. Now, before we move on to the poor handling of evidence in this case, let's talk about the trial. Kevin Cooper testified in his own defense, stating that he did escape from CIM. He hid in the 
the vacant home. However, like I said, he denied having any involvement in the murders at the Ryan house. He said that he left the vacant home on foot, he hitchhiked and stole a purse and eventually made his way to Mexico where he befriended the people with the boat. The jury for this trial consisted of six men and six women. The trial originally began in San Bernardino, however, had to be moved to San Diego because of the publicity that this case was getting up north. Now, Joshua had also testified. He was 10 years old at this time and his testimony was pre-recorded. This is when his story somewhat changed again. This time, Joshua said he saw the shadow of someone standing in the bathroom. He said he wasn't sure who it was because it was night and it was hard to see who's who when all of the lights are off. However, this time, he said that there was only one attacker again. So he went from one attacker to three attackers to back to one attacker again. Now, the jury deliberated for five and a half days before they found Kevin Cooper guilty on February 19, 1985 on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. The jury then deliberated for three and a half days before recommending the death penalty rather than life in prison without parole, and Kevin was also denied motion for a new trial. Now let's talk about where this case gets a little tricky because with everything I just told you, you might be sitting there thinking that there is no question about this. Kevin is definitely guilty and you might still believe that by the end of this, but let's talk about some of the reasons that people believe that he is innocent. The first being that at the crime scene, in 10-year-old Jessica's hand, there were strands of blonde hair found clutched in her hand as if she pulled the hair of her attacker. Kevin is an African-American man with black hair, so why is Jessica holding blonde hair? That question has never been answered, and the hair in Jessica's hands was never tested. However, the prosecution claims that the reason the hair was never tested was because it didn't have any roots attached to it, so they wouldn't be able to test it for DNA. Now, another weird thing here is that there is a woman who went to authorities after the murders saying that she believed that her boyfriend was involved in this. This woman's boyfriend is a man named Lee Furo, and Lee's girlfriend said that on the night of the murders, Lee came home super late and was wearing coveralls covered in blood. Lee is also a convicted murderer who had been released from prison for about a year at the time of the attacks after he had finished his sentence. Lee's girlfriend also said that he owned a hatchet and when she went to go check after she heard about the murders to see if the hatchet was still there, the hatchet was gone. Something else that's strange here is that the cigarette buds that were found with Kevin's DNA on them, those cigarette buds were actually not found when police did their first search of the car, which indicated to a lot of people that it was very possible that these cigarette buds could have been planted there. Now, prosecution argued this by saying that the car was only initially inspected to make sure that it was the Ryan car and to confirm that fact. And the first time they searched the car, they didn't really go through it with a fine tooth comb. That's why the cigarette buds were not found the first time. Now, there was also a t-shirt that had blood on it that was found at a nearby bar. And when the blood was tested, it came up as having the blood from both Kevin 
and the victims on it. However, when the shirt was handed over to authorities, it mysteriously disappeared for about 24 hours. This led a lot of people to believe that Kevin's blood could have been planted on the shirt during that missing time period. Something else that's really interesting here is that when Kevin was arrested, authorities actually took a sample of his blood and put it in a test tube. This is very normal. This is something that is protocol. Now, when this happens, lab technicians put in a chemical called EDTA that basically preserves the blood. Now, in terms of the tan t-shirt, Kevin's blood on that shirt came back with elevated levels of EDTA in it, suggesting that the blood linked to him came from a test tube and not from his body directly. Because if the blood found on the shirt came strictly just from Kevin's body, there should not be any levels of EDTA in it. Along with that, there was basically no blood left in the test tube after this testing. According to a DNA expert, they said that there is no testing imaginable that would consume that much blood. So where did the blood go? A lot of people believe it's possible that the blood from the test tube was taken out and placed directly on this tan shirt in order to incriminate Kevin. Now, Lee's girlfriend also said that on the day of the murders, Lee was wearing a beige slash light brown colored t-shirt. However, he claims that that is a completely false statement and he was not wearing that color shirt that night. Now, another piece of evidence was an orange towel found that belonged to the Ryans, and when it was tested, it pulled a full DNA profile. However, the DNA did not match Kevin Cooper's or any of the victims, so it is believed that whoever's DNA was on that towel is the killer. Lee's DNA was also not linked to that towel. And Lee is adamant that he did not murder the Ryan family and said that he has nothing to do with any of this and that he served his time for his own crime that he committed and that he was 30 miles away from the crime scene when this occurred and just does not want to be associated with this whatsoever. Now, Kevin Cooper's execution date was originally set for February 10th, 2004, and the day came and within just three hours and 42 minutes of being executed, the Ninth Circuit Federal Court stepped in. Kevin was appointed a new attorney named Norman Heil, who worked for Kevin pro bono and said that he believes that Kevin is the victim of a horribly racist prosecution. He brought Kevin's case back in front of 27 appellate judges who work with appealing cases. And 11 judges out of the 27 said they believed that Kevin did not get a proper hearing. One judge said that they believed Joshua's memory was influenced by one of the deputies who visited Josh 20 times during his hospital stay. They believe that the deputy got Josh to change his story and also noted that Joshua never ID'd Kevin Cooper. It was even said that during his hospital stay, Joshua saw pictures of Kevin Cooper on TV and said that Kevin was not the killer. According to Norman, he said that Kevin was the easy way out for authorities. In December 2018, the governor, Jerry Brown, issued an executive order for DNA testing on the hatchet, the tan shirt, the orange towel, and the hatchet covering. Two months after that, California Governor Gavin Newsom ordered more testing, including the vial of Kevin's blood. However, despite all of that, the DNA testing confirmed that the DNA is too degraded at this point to be tested. 
To this day, no one knows who was wearing that tan shirt, and there was no conclusive result on any of the tests. The only successful test that was done was on the orange towel that came back as having the unknown DNA that was not a match to Kevin Cooper. To this day, the family members of the victims do believe that Kevin is responsible for the murders. They think that things line up and the fact that he was staying at the house next door just makes sense. However, they have said that they believe that it's too odd to think that this is an only one person job, considering that it would have to be five people against one. However, you also have to remember that three of those five people were young children. Now, as of right now, Kevin Cooper is still currently on death row. He maintains his innocence and believes that one day he will walk out of prison as a free man. He is meeting with as many people as he can to get his story out there and believes that justice will be served for him. He has always maintained his innocence. His story has never really changed. And this isn't to say that Kevin Cooper is an angel either. Even if you are on the side where you believe he's innocent, he definitely has committed some horrific crimes himself with the burglary and the rape. He's no angel in this, no matter what. However, the question here is did he murder the Ryan family? Is he responsible for that crime? And that is where I'm turning to you and would love to hear your opinion. You guys can email me at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can DM me on Instagram. Like I said, it's just at killerinstinctpodcast. And with that being said, you guys, that's all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another true crime episode here on Killer Instinct. Like I said, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every single Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe.